Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David, and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Luke. You know, your expectations are pretty low. And Crystal. He swims very well for a woman. (laughs) (laughs) And today we also have a special guest with us, friend of the show and also a close friend of ourselves, Craig. Tom Perion 53 should be served under 38 degrees. Anything over 38 degrees is like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. <laughs> <laughs> now, Craig's a, a huge Bond fan, and since this episode is all about the world's greatest spy, Agent 007, uh, I thought it would be good to have Craig on board, and uh, I'm glad we are, because some of his choices were <laughs> strange, to say the least. <laughs> we're, we're very different to what would be expected. <laughs> That's cool. So, the best of Bond. So, instead of just having uh, one top five like we have in the past, we're actually going to have five top fives, and there's five of us here. Wow. And then we're going to do the top five of the top fives. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get crazy. So, our top five Bonds, and the th- our categories are the theme songs, the gadgets, uh, which include the cars, uh, villains, uh, Bonds themselves, and the films, so we're covering quite a lot. Now, I know that there's a, there's a lot of these sort of uh, top five, top ten sort of lists on the internet. I mean, in researching this episode, I've noticed there's quite a few of them. But stuff then. This is the NCP best of Bond. The, the definitive. The, the definitive Bond. Our lists are better than their lists. <laughs> Our lists are correct. That's right. <laughs> One of their lists, Luke? Wrong. Wrong. That's right. <laughs> We decided to do this because uh, last episode we reviewed Skyfall, and um, we're all Bond. Everybody in this room is a Bond fan. Uh, some obviously more so than others. Uh, so it seems just natural to do an entire Bond episode. And it's also the fiftieth anniversary of um, the film franchise, anyway. Mm. Excellent, as I was going to say, and I didn't ask because he just said it for me. <laughs> that's um, right. Yeah, we're celebrating. That's right. Bond is huge at the moment because of the fiftieth anniversary. So mm. let's let's show our respect for the great man, and. Uh, well, I wouldn't really call him a great man. He's a bit of a prick, actually. Yes. But, but, uh, he's awesome. So let's and really, on. there's several of him. So, the great men. The great men. Okay, so let's start off with our top five theme songs. We've got, starting coming in at number five, we've got Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. Now, uh, that was your pick, Greg. Yes. What's the deal? Uh, I think it's just a brilliantly constructed song. I think it's the most perfectly sung song. I think it's... Uh, sung better than anything that Shirley Bassey ever did. Uh, and hey, blasphemy. I'm called for. Absolutely. <laughs> Cheap shot. And, uh, I just, well, obviously for me, there's a slight bias because The Spy Who Loved Me is my favourite film. Right. The film, uh, we'll talk about that later anyway, but yeah. uh, I just think uh, the song, it just strikes a chord with me. It was the first Bond that I ever saw on the big screen really? and possibly uh, my childhood connects with the song for that particular reason. Anyway, moving on to number four is a three-way tie. Wow, that's pretty way. impressive. So we won't go too deep into it because we don't want to be here all day, but three-way tie between A View to a Kill by Duran Duran, Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey, The Great Lady, yes, and You Only Live Twice by Nancy Sinatra. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So okay. I actually prefer You Only Live Twice because I put that in my list above um, Goldfinger. You know, respect Goldfinger is a great song and I respect the influence it's had on um, quite on certainly all the Bond songs afterwards. I like there's a nice subtlety to "You Only Live Twice." Plus, I also like the use of the the violins and the strings at the start to create because because I mean, like, like I said, in Japan, 
to create a more slightly more Asian influence. Um, yeah, but Nancy Sinatra, she just can't sing. <laughs> she's got an okay voice. She does. She, it's, it's, look at look at look enough. at who she's well, with. Shirley Bassey. Neither can Frank really. And the lyrics, I think, are quite nice too. And they're, they're trying to do a sort of a, a, a Europeanization of you know haiku and things like that. But how can you go past Goldfinger? Goldfinger. That's Gold. Goldfinger has to be on this list because I know it's awesome. And Leslie Bracusa wrote both Goldfinger oh. and You Only Live Twice. There you okay. go. So. So and of course, if you do a kill, the, the, the classic 80s Bond Duran Duran effort. But oh, it's cool. But uh, it's... No, I'm actually quite. I, I like this one. But I also like, I must admit, for me, that's also watching the um, the film clip. Yeah. And watching the film clip in as a kid before I saw the film, when you get to the Eiffel Tower sequence, I was constantly sitting there going, hey God, where's Simon Le Bon? <laughs> Where, where's all the other guys with all the cool stuff? Why am I just watching Bond chase Grace Jones up, an Eiffel, up the Eiffel Tower? Here's. Here's what I'll say about A View to a Kill. Simon Le Bon is Bond. <laughs> the clip ends. The clip ends. Yeah. Um, because he, he's um, sitting there. Cause he's, his gadget is this um, this Walkman that makes things blow up. He's sitting there playing with it, and some woman comes up to him and taps him on the shoulder and says, "Hey, aren't you?" And he turns around, private. He turns to her and then looks at the camera and says, "Bon, Simon Le Bon." <laughs> it is an awesome it's video. So abysmally it's abysmally edited the film itself. I was going to say, you're forgetting the most important thing is that A View to a Kill, the video clip. Uh, brings the film down to as long as it should have been, about three minutes. Yes. <laughs> uh, exactly right. I can't stand any of their songs, but the video for Girls on Film, brilliant. Coming in at number three. Just one more bit of trivia. Yep. Did you realise that the two guys that wrote Goldfinger went on to write Willy Wonka and The Chocolate Factory? They wrote all the music. The original yeah. or the terrible? Yeah. No, the Gene, oh, the awesome. Gene version. Well, in that case, yeah. cool. genius. Yeah. Yes. Uh, awesome. <laughs> that, they deserve, but this is why we have Craig on this. That's show. right. No one knows more about music than Craig. No, no one does it better. Knows it better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Hooker. <laughs> Coming in at number three, we have The Living Daylights by Aha. Really? Yep. yep. Oh, enough, <laughs> number three. Kicked it at the post by one point higher than the Who on earth is voting for that? Oh, hey. oh, <laughs> it was Luke. Um, I've, always, I've always just liked it. They're like strong stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's... In the grand in the grand scheme of things, you know it's probably not a very good song, but it's all it you know on a constant beat keeps itself going. The lyrics are wonderfully tried, yet you know still uh, attempts to have some sense of meaning. It, it, you, you know, you're not selling me on the something. song. Here. It's just it, I it, like it. It, it. It just hits the um, it hits it hits the right yeah. beats. It it keeps That's itself right. going. It doesn't overstay its welcome the way a lot of the a lot of the Bond songs do. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it gets in and it gets itself it gets out very quickly. Fair enough. Moving on, number two, the James Bond theme mm. by uh, John Barry and Monty Norman. We're going to get into the legal wranglings between those two. They're both, <laughs> yeah, they're both good, involved good in some way. Good mm. call. So, it's, I mean, I'm amazed, I'm amazed this isn't number one, to be honest. But it, yeah. it's, it's, it should be. It is uh, incredibly iconic and mm. uh, instantly recognisable by anyone around the world. Mm. And, mm. and I, I really, what I really love about the James Bond theme is not just its, its own composition, but the way each uh, soundtrack integrates that into the film along with the theme song of that film yeah the, the variations the variations on it so, so it's sort of and it they really what um what are the theme the theme changes for each individual mm. bond too which yeah. is what i think is just amazing so mm. it's just really it's, it's a lot more bombastic for the heavy hitter type you know daniel craig type bonds and yeah. a little bit more mellow for the roger moore type bonds so number one a, a clear winner in fact 
In fact, uh, this is the only one of my choices that made it to the list. Really? <laughs> well, there you go. Amazing. From, from 1981? No. Live and Let Die. Oh, of course. Dun-dun-dun. 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 <laughs> didn't make it. I'm surprised. <laughs> the I only think... version anyone should ever listen to is mm. Wings. Yeah, so the, win, oh, the Wings version, of course. You don't want that Guns N' Roses version of it. Oh, oh. I like the Guns N' Roses version. Oh. Blasphemy. Live and Let Die is Brent. Mm. Yeah. And I think Live and Let Die and Dr. No, I think, have really strong... A really strong soundtrack right throughout the film. Mm. Mm. Um, there's a great uh, soul version of Live and Let Die in the film mm. that's sung yes. by the black woman on stage. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Which is really good. Oh, yeah. I actually may yeah. want to watch this film and at least fast forward to that bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, love that, I love that soul cap of restaurant play. It goes in like three times. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great thing about Live and Let Die. The entire movie is just like this Bond black exploitation. That's movie. my favourite black exploitation. Oh, and the, bit, and the bit with the, the funeral procession down yeah. the street. Yeah. They used to give me nightmares for uh, years when really I was yeah. yeah it is yeah. it was scary I'm a big fan the, the, yeah. I think the amazing thing about Live and Let Die um, unlike a lot of the other Bond songs Live and Let Die is actually a brilliant song mm. in its own right that's right yeah like it's, yeah. it's mm. with all the other songs you just you, you connect them so intrinsically to the movies yeah but I think Live and Let Die just stands by itself it's as the only one that still gets music. constant radio airplay yeah, yeah exactly well, and deservedly so it's such a great song there's two reasons for it you had, you know, the number one artist in the world at the time, yeah. Paul McCartney at the peak of his powers. Yeah. And you had the world's best producer, George Martin, yeah. producing the song. So yeah. it's the, you know, it was the one thing that John Barry didn't do through that whole period. Yeah. So yeah. I think he wasn't available for some reason. I can't remember what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I think that was a good thing. Paul McCartney him. poisoned him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard many rumours about Paul McCartney. I'll just start a new Beatles rumour. <laughs> you might have eaten some well, of Linda, no, Linda's vegetarian was, food. The good thing was the good thing was that it actually wasn't Paul McCartney because, as we know, Paul McCartney had died many years ago. <laughs> oh, so this was the His evil Paul McCartney double. That it's not the evil double because he doesn't have a goatee. Yeah, yeah. good point. <laughs> Just to show people that we don't, it's not all about the love here at NCP, uh, we're also going to include what we uh, thought was the worst example of his category. Yes. And the winner of the worst song is uh, none other than Die Another Day by Madonna. Oh, and uh, thank God for that. Because no. God damn, it's That's terrible. Harsh. Not harsh enough. Oh, exactly oh. right. Not harsh enough. It's not even comparable is, to the two previous ones. It is not, it <laughs> not is even comparable. Worse. It is, okay, first of all, it's, it's not a Bond song. It has no highs, no lows, no nothing of interest. It just exists at this constant, boring state of nothingness. Oh. And it is so monotonous. It, was and so... it is exactly like Die Another Day, the movie. <laughs> it is long, monotonous, nothing interesting goes yeah. on in the song. Like you were saying before about Live and Let Die, about why it's so brilliant because it exists on its own. It's not part of the Bond franchise. Yeah. This is not even a good song. Exactly. I mean, right. it's, not, it's, not, it's no melody. There's nothing interesting in the lyrics. Madonna's terrible. It's awful. And it fits and it perfectly in the film. incredibly successful. I know, which is yes, a shame. Yes, amazingly because, successful. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's good. Just before we move on <laughs> from the songs, can I just give special mention to Johnny Cash's submission for Thunderball? By all means. <laughs> Thunderball. <laughs> yeah, no, so it's, as with, with each film, they actually, there's multiple submissions mm. for the song and they, with, and they pick the one that they mm. feel best works. And yeah. Thunderball's... Was, uh, was it Johnny Cash? Yeah, well, in pre- preparation for this episode, I went back and watched all the opening sequences because that's my favourite thing from the Bond films. And uh, actually watched that one thinking it was the actual one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought, this actually doesn't really sound like a Bond song. It sounds more like it should be done for a Clint Eastwood film. Mm. 
but uh, I really liked it. And I put it in my top five. I need to find out later. Hang on, that's not the no, <laughs> official no, song. Tom, Tom Jones. Jones classic. <laughs> um, just two other songs. Thunderball was originally called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Was, <laughs> what uh, written that? by Leslie Bricus, who wrote Goldfinger. I'm and, pulling it there um, from now on. <laughs> Uh, but Shirley Bassey recorded that and Albert Broccoli didn't like it. Uh, and, um, good call. <laughs> and because he didn't think it connected with the name of the film, he wanted a song written about the name of the film. So they went with the Tom Jones version. But there is a recording. You can get Shirley Bassey singing that. And also um, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. There's an Alice Cooper album called Muscle of Love. With That's the, his version of the song. Cool. The way he wanted it recorded. Uh, okay, that uh, would be awesome. On, uh, on that album, I've but they went with Lulu's version, which was a really wise choice. I've, I've got a question. Is the, is the Alice Cooper version... No, it's a different song. Uh, is it better than... Yes. Okay, that is Alice better. Cooper better than Lulu? Yes. In, in 1974. <laughs> exactly right, at the height of his powers. Yeah. So next up we have our top five gadgets. Coming in at number five is a tie between the exploding pen from Goldeneye, if you can figure out that sequence, and the jet... Bike from The Spy Who Loved Me. Just on that, a lot of that has to do with the fact that I was 11 years old when I first saw The Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> cool. We'd never heard or seen a jet ski. They didn't exist. Yeah. So for a young boy to have seen, like, a motorbike on the water, I mean, they're so common now that you would yep. look at that and think, what's the big deal? Yeah. But to, to see that for the first time, it was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that's why it ranks And it looks cool. I actually think, think, cool. I actually think that awesome. looks cooler than the modern jet skis that you get today. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the, uh, the exploding pen sequence. Um, the, the, to explain, because that was, my, that was my, one of my choices, and for me the gadget list was quite hard, yeah. because the gadgets, for the most part, for me, are just kind of, either, for the most part, are either there, they're there to make up the numbers, or they become plot contrivances. Bond yeah. uses this gadget to get out. Whereas, so a lot of, a lot of my top fives in this was trying to determine what gadgets actually served a purpose in the story or had an interesting sequence in and of themselves. Yep. And this one, because it gets introduced in, you know, the infamous Q um, sequences that they all do, but then there's a moment where Bond loses the pen, it gets into the hands of Alan Cumming, and then Bond spends a lot of time trying to work out just exactly how many clicks, because you can only click yeah. it three times before the, the, yeah. the time is the charge sets, and you've got three seconds to get out of um, the blast range before it explodes. Yeah, Bond's doing exactly what the audience is doing. Yeah. He's yeah. trying to count the clicks. But yeah. it's used, it, it's not just there to get Bond out of a situation, it's actually used there for a tense moment, and Bond's not sure if it, if, if what he does next is going to be the right course of action. Yeah. Turns out, of course, that, he, that he, what he does is correct. Um, but it's a, it, that's why it's in there, because it's actually used in, in a sequence itself that adds to the drama and the tension. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you in, in how hard this list was. This was actually the hardest mm. list for me, because... I was the same sort of thing. I mean, I actually, the thing about the gadgets that I don't like is that it's introduced, the introductions at the start in the, with that QHQ is awesome. But then you get, then it's only, most of the time it's only introduced so that he will then, you know he's going to use it yeah. at some point later on in the film. Yeah. The worst for that, I think, is the magnetic watch. It's like, why would you have a magnetic watch? <laughs> Really, what purpose does it serve to you? And, and of course, then later on, it becomes vital that he has his magnetic watch. And I was like, oh. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the, um, the end, the world is not enough. Getting the um the the overcoat the getting the um the snow coat that turns into a giant ball yeah like really really <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's why I love the handgun in Skyfall yeah it's so simple it he makes always sense. has to have a gun it does make sense that if he loses it no one else can use it yeah, yeah. and then of course really... he loses it like ten minutes <laughs> in <laughs> anyway that's a, that's a different story I just love the get smart play on the gadgets 
Yeah, so it's really starts to get a bit sillier. I, I like. He should have had, had a shoe phone. But yes. I do, I do love that HQ scene where you see some some stupid intern do something silly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or they're testing the things out. And it's pretty cool. Mm. Um, the Q assistance. So coming in at number four, we had another tie between Jaws Teeth. Yeah, not Jaws Teeth. <laughs> and Tiger Tanaka's Train. Uh, Tiger Tanaka's Train, brilliant. Yeah, I've, I've got to do this. To Tiger Tanaka, to me. <laughs> is one of the greatest characters ever. <laughs> Everything about him is awesome. I mean, he has, you know, these, like, trained kung fu women that work for him. He's got an island full of ninja. I mean, the guy's got everything, but he has a train. And it's not its not actually the train itself, mm. but it's what the train actually represents and, and what it says about just how awesome Tiger Tanaka is. He has a train um, and a network of subway tunnels underneath Japan um, with all these like hidden entranceways and trapdoors and things down into the subway. And he is constantly on the move so that nobody can ever track down where his headquarters is. <laughs> and I think that that's just, that's amazing. And it's, what, what I love about it is, like I said, Tiger Tanaka, awesome and everything, but it's also very clever and makes a lot of sense mm. if you're the head of a top secret organisation to not actually have a stationary base. Yeah. So Jaws Teeth... <laughs> you don't actually want you don't want to pay yourself, do you? No, no, no definitely not. No, d- terrifying, absolutely yeah. terrifying. They were. So I mean, he's whole, and yeah. of course they were in the right mouth as well. Yeah. So yeah, because so he, he was a terrifying character. It helps so. Ronnie Barker. <laughs> yeah, Richard Keel is a big, imposing-looking guy. <laughs> it's interesting. I wonder if they uh, looked for, looked at Andre the Giant for that particular yeah. role as well, because I uh, think he would have done that role. We're around the same sort of time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so coming in at number three, another tie. Jeez. So many gadgets, not enough time. And I didn't vote for any of these. I know. <laughs> uh, it's a tie between Little Nelly from You Only Live Twice mm. and The Briefcase from, from Russia. From from Russia We Love. Yep. These are two of my choices. Little Nelly is a gyrocopter. I attacked out gyrocopter. Gyrocopter, that, yeah. um, that Bond actually has, who's already in Japan and You Only Live Twice, sends um, to Q4. Like he asks, he asks. Oh, one of the few times where he's actually, yeah. He gets I Q, need this specific thing. I need thing. this, spe- yeah. need this specific thing. Um, and it's there for a purpose. He's using it to spy on the islands, but doesn't want something big and bulky that's going to show up on radar and things like that. Although but, it is horrendously loud. It is horrendously loud. <laughs> <It's> like, um, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't radar wouldn't see, but anybody who's <laughs> walking past, like, oh wow, what's that? <laughs> but it gets, it gets one of the infamous, one, one of the, one of the best sequences in you only live twice, which is the, um, the sky fight with a whole bunch of. They're not quite Black Hawk helicopters, but um, big, bulky, black, um, tricked-out machine guns. And as Bond says, Little Nelly, they made advances on Little Nelly, but she defended her, she defended her on And it's a, a very cool little sequence. It's a practical, again, it's a practical uh, device, but at the same time, adds it is one of the more memorable sequences. It, it, it adds something. Yeah. And uh, you also had the brief, briefcase, Luke. I chose the briefcase just because it's awesome. <laughs> it's of all the, of all. The I mean, non- it's useful. <laughs> yeah, that's just it. Of all of, of all the non-bond, uh, all the non-vehicle gadgets that Bond has, it's the one that I said they're going. Well, I could actually use that. You know, yeah. it's got the knife that comes out. Yeah, it's got the um the sub-nose machine gun in the hidden apartment. It's got. So I'm worried about what you need a knife and a sub-machine gun for. <laughs> you don't want to know. I, you don't want to know. Would t- I'd ha- I could tell you, but, but you then I'd have to kill, kill you. Yeah, it looks like it could actually be real. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in the real world. You from Ikea. From mm. yeah, <laughs> <for> Ikea. <laughs> Ikea would never have anything that cool. The 007 range. Assemble it yourself. 
Uh, so number two, we've got another tie. The Underwater Lotus and yeah. Odd Jobs Bowler Hat. Yeah. <laughs> is this uh, number two? This is number two. Yeah. Oh, I, um, I, I, the, yeah. I actually chose both of these. So I, did I. So, yeah. so other people. Odd Jobs mm. Bowler Hat for me is... Uh, it's just genius. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, I mean, really, it's just a bowler hat with uh, you know razor sharp edges. So it's pretty, pretty basic stuff. But I mean, odd job himself is awesome. The strength that he throws it, just a lot of he throws it and chops off the head oh. of the statue. It's <laughs> brilliant. I didn't realize odd jobs was the character. I thought the name of the bowler hat was odd jobs bowler hat. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably it's probably been marketed as odd jobs <laughs> seal of approval. I mean, this is also the weapon of choice for the first of the, um, I guess we'd call them the more exotic henchmen. Henchmen, yeah. You know, I mean, you'd had Red Grant before this, but I mean, this was the first example of a henchman that kills people in bizarre and unusual ways. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, the fact that he's an awesome character, that he looks really cool, and that he has this bowler hat. It's <laughs> a deadly, deadly weapon. It's just fantastic. deadly bowler. I just the idea behind it is just genius. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, and it's very it's a British sort of thing. Too, yeah. Well, I mean, it hat. reminds me of um, of um, the Avengers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of Steed in the Avengers with his uh, metal laced bowler hat that he yeah. uses as a weapon as well. Good so. point. And of course, the Lotus. Yeah, it's just. I mean, it's 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 iconic. It's uh, it just it looks awesome. And uh, the fact that it's meant to be watertight and yet still has fish swimming around it is crazy. <laughs> Can I just make a point but, about uh, that? It does not look awesome. It does look awesome. It's a terrible looking no, it looks. It looks like a spaceship. Yeah. Brit. Yeah, I agree. And uh, just the fact that, just watching the whole thing, the car become the submarine, just fantastic. I oh, loved yeah. it. And very reflective of the, the Roger Moore era, I suppose, of Bond. Yeah, and I guess yeah. that's what the, the problem with the Roger Moore period is because they kept doing that and it's just dated it's them. It's oversaturation of just gadgets. Yeah. Is, mm. What is this? Yeah. Well, that's why um, Sean Connery got fed up. And the reason for that was I am so sick of the gadgets. Mm. They, they just don't make it fun. Well, one, ga- <laughs> one gadget that uh, Sean Connery wasn't sick of, and I can assure you, is our number one pick mm. and uh, a winner from a clear margin is the Aston Martin. Mm. This is to bond what the TARDIS is to Doctor Who, what the Enterprise is to Star Trek. Mm. Of all the gadgets, you don't go past this. Yeah, yeah. yeah really. Was there any other? Possibly the Lotus would have been the only possible other mm. one to, I think, win that spot. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, our, our worst selection is a tie. Yes. <laughs> didn't we all vote for the same thing? No, no, actually, we didn't. Uh, the Vanquish from Die Another Day, mm. the invisible car, which is useless. Yep. And radioactive lint from <laughs> On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> I thought okay, it was okay, don't, don't get me wrong. The the Vanquish is a dumb idea for a car, and and it unless it you're Wonder you... Woman. <laughs> but uh, but I never understood that Wonder Woman was the Invisible Jet either. <laughs> but it's kind of like okay, he's a secret agent anyway. He's always yeah. going to be over the top. Really, you don't need to give him an invisible car. Um, radioactive lint. Yep. Seriously, he's going to go around sprinkle radioactive lint on the floor of where of every single part. First of all, causing himself cancer. It's the Bond's <laughs> equivalent of pixie dust. But <laughs> see, pixie dust makes more sense than this. It, it just boggles the mind. It's such a <laughs> and on the face of it, it is so boring. But then I uh, wouldn't take away the wouldn't take the sheer boredom of this gadget. It makes no sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along, the top five villains. Coming in at number five, we've got a three-way tie. Another three-way. 
and considering one of the people in this, a three-way is appropriate. I am, of course, talking about Xenia on a top. Banky Jansen from Goldeneye. Uh, Odd Job, Harold Sakata from Goldfinger. And Red Grant, played by Robert Shaw in From Russia with Love. Wow, all the, all the cool henchmen in one spot. <laughs> I'm surprised they're so low. So, uh, Craig, you had Xenia. Yep. You're the only person who has Xenia, in fact. Okay. Why is that? I think um, you've got to be careful with Bond villains because I think one of the things that makes a villain so strong are the sidekicks a lot of the time. I think Oric Goldfinger is a good example of that. How good would Oric Goldfinger be without Oddjob? Yeah. yeah. And um, and I think Xenia uh, on the top just totally outweighs General What's-His-Name. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. General What's-His-Name. General What's-His-Name. Who <laughs> is awesome. He, he but, is, but he's but, just yeah, whenever, totally whenever insignificant. Whenever they're together, I mean, who are you looking at? Yeah, exactly. But he's, he's sort of there to serve the plot earlier on, but he's not interesting. He's sufficiently interesting enough to come back, whereas on a top is, you know, she gets that great uh, moment, uh, moment in the casino in, at the start of GoldenEye where she, she and Bond have their usual quip-off. Um, I actually think that her best scene is the steam room. Yeah, definitely. Without no, no, Jack, no, but, because it's when James Bond is finally getting the woman he deserves. Mm. And, uh, and I think she's the perfect fit for that. It's also got one of the best lines. Yes. No more foreplay. And one, yes, and one of the saddest moments for me in any Bond film is when she dies. Yeah. I, I just, I, I would have liked her to have come back and become a recurring character because I just you, think she's... She couldn't have continued on because you had Alec. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I guess so, but mm. I just didn't want to because she's such a great character. Goldeneye's full of too much, too much awesomeness. Yes, it? Is. <laughs> and uh, of course, Odd Job, we've talked about it before with his bowler hat, but he's just, he's just an imposing figure. Mm. Yep. He is. He just, he, you just don't want to mess with him. He mm. just, yeah, he just looks like a killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's a great actor too, Harold Sakata. He's, he's uh, yeah. very big in Japan. He's got that Asian Edward G. Robinson feel about him. Mm. Like he's he's that. just a little man, but he's... He packs a huge punch for such a little man. Oh, yeah, yeah and he, he decimates Bond. I mean, yes, he does. <laughs> Bond wins by, by, just by accident, really. <laughs> and I think, I think that's actually a really good sign for henchmen, too, is if they can actually pose a genuine threat to Bond. Mm. Like, a lot of them don't. A mm. lot of them are there to be, you know, just a henchman. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the three that we've got here... Yeah, it's all about imp- it, uh, just imp- a threat is Red Grant, mm. who is mm. just... He's basically the anti-Bond. Mm. You know, so I, I, I absolutely, I love this villain. Yeah. Mm. He just, I mean, he's, he's awesome throughout the entire film, mm. and he really, he really is the nem- our nemesis. You yeah, know what I mean? mm. it's interesting because um, Richo said, you know, this is the whole henchman, but it's interesting because the the villain, and technically Richo is right. Red Grant is in fact a henchman. Yeah, he's number one. But um, and the villain is in fact Rosa Klebb from Russia with Love. Mm. But from Rosa, Rosa Klebb doesn't really do very much. Yeah, he does not. No. Red Grant does all the really cool stuff and gets one of the best sequences in from Russia with Love, which is that great fight on the train. On the train, yeah. Um, but also the bit beforehand where um, he and Bond are sort of facing off and they're going through the, oh, this is my plan, Mr. Bond uh, <laughs> moment. Can I just say, too, that um, that's the scriptwriter's fault? Because Rosa Klebb in the book from Russia with Love mm. is frightening. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, yeah she's so. given a lot more prominence, um, particularly yeah. given what she does to Bond at the end. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. I think what helps too with Red Grant though is um, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw is just such an imposing, yes. charismatic. Just dominates the screen in everything he does. In every single film I've seen him in, he he just dominates, and he does it here as well. Mm. Yeah, even against an actor of the quality of Sean Connery. He, he still just stands out as mm. a massive presence every time he's on the screen. Mm. And his character is interesting things. It's not just he doesn't just barge on the train and fight Bond. He, uh, he, he 
uses psychological warfare, psycho- yeah. psychological warfare but um, um, he, he attempts to use subterfuge and spycraft to get another train, doesn't just barge, barge his way in, yeah. um, attempts to be clever about it, yeah. and attempts to gain Bond's confidence and, um, and the like. So there's something else going on here. Yeah. Mm. Coming in at number four, we have Dr. Julius No, played by Joseph Wiseman. Mm. In Dr. No. Mm. Don't that. <laughs> um, the the thing about the character was that Dr. No was influencing his attempt to do for Manchu. Right. Um, and it, you know the the sort of yellow peril, the Asian menace. Um, it's interesting that in no way do I think of Doctor No as Fu Manchu. I think of him as someone far, far worse. Joseph Wiseman was not actually the first actor to be considered for the role. Mm. The, the, Ian Fleming actually wanted his friend Noel Coward to play Doctor No. <laughs> Noel Coward. And that should be awesome. interesting. I'd watch that. <laughs> it would have very different. Oh, I was disappointed with Doctor No, yeah. the character. No, not the film, the, oh. the character, because uh, he didn't have long fingernails, and I wanted him to say, Not the crow, the crow! <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, just in referencing what you were saying about Robert Shaw earlier, mm. one of the things that I love about Dr. No is just how understated he is as mm. a villain. And once again, we haven't had Goldfinger yet, so we have, we're not getting into the over-the-top villains just yet either. Although, it should be said but, that Dr. No, with his, with his uh, metal hands and his underwater base... Or the island base that he's yeah, got. He has, he has elements of that, but the actual performance itself, mm. like he's very understated as a villain. Mm. I love just how cool, calm and collected he is at all times. Mm. There's something um, else important about his character though, is that the film is so well made because you have a fear of him before you even see him yeah. on the screen. There's this build up yeah, of absolutely. who is this mysterious character because yeah. he's not in the film for very long. No. And by the time you're seeing him, you're, you're almost terrified of him. The, the, yeah. the suspense is just amazing. Yeah, that, that, voice, that voice in the room with the guy sitting with the tarantula. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I always thought that the, the villain from Enter the Dragon was like their sort of Hong Kong version of Dr. No. <laughs> I can see that. Mm. I can see where you're coming from. Anyway, moving on to number three. A two-way tie between Alec Trevelyan, played by Sean Bean from GoldenEye. The great Sean Bean. And Jaws, Richard Keel, uh, from The Spy Who Loved Me, and unfortunately also from Moonraker. He's not number one. That means I know who number one is. Yeah. I, I can't... I, sorry, I, I just can't... I didn't vote for any of these because I'm not much of a Bond watcher, but I can't believe these two are a tie. Wouldn't I, I would have thought Jaws would have won that. Yes, me too. Well, I, I would have um, thought that too, but no. 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 No, not in, at all. In no, way shape, yeah. in no way, shape or form Take away. Jaws... Take away Odd Job and... Nah. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. If, uh, in no, I'm sorry. In no way is Jaws a better villain than Alec Trevelyan. <laughs> Alec Trevelyan is quite cleverly done the anti-Bond. They set him up right from the start. Bond for for a long period thinks that his friend has been dead, um, and that he is partly to, partly to blame for that. And then realizes his friend is in fact still alive, is seeking to undermine the stuff that Bond fights for, um, and is now absolutely set against um, our hero. And the methods that Bond has to go to do uh, has to go to defeat him, while still the fact that he's now fighting his friend, um, makes him a far more effective threat than any Bond villain. I think. Basically, James Bond is really a character that, to some extent or another, is on the edge, mm. and really all it's going to take is one bad day to tip him over, and to basically make him what Trevelyan is. Mm. And to me, that's what makes him stand out as the greatest villain because. Not only is Sean Bean a great actor and he plays a great villain mm. in his own right, but he's telling us so much about Bond as a character as well. Mm. 
does Sean Bean get another awesome death scene in this? You know, he does. He like, does it. Yes, he gets is, is it a nine-arrow death scene? He dies twice, scene? in fact. Yeah. <laughs> no, nobody dies better than Sean Bean. <laughs> but uh, let's, not, let's not take... I mean, Alec is awesome. Don't get me wrong. I also voted for Alec. But Jaws, Jaws is just a, a perfect example of a henchman. I mean, Alec is the main villain, whereas yeah. I mean, Jaws is a, the henchman. I mean, he's huge. Mm. The steel teeth. I mean, he's iconic. Yeah. My problem with putting Jaws on this list is Jaws is a great villain in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. But then there's Moonraker. Yeah. You and can't count that, though. No, every, you can count Every, every villain is only in one film. But he's not. No, he's and not. that's the point. That's generally. No. generally no. Apart from Blofeld, but there's different actors anyway. Yeah. There's, but, there's but better the Blofelds is, than others. Yeah, but the problem is this. <laughs> yeah, in, in, as, as we sort of stated earlier when we were talking about the teeth, Jaws is a monstrous, imposing, horrifying villain in one film. Then in Moonraker, they try to humanise him and make him a good guy and just go to hell. Moving on to number two before David has an aneurysm. That's right. <laughs> I'm close. The one and only. Actually, no, because he's played by like four different people. Blowfield. Mm. Uh, another one. Actually, everybody uh, said which Blowfield they were talking about. And it's actually Donald Pleasant's yep. Blowfield from You Only Live Twice. Mm. Uh, but he was played by other people. Well, it's hard to vote for the hand of the cat that appears in the film before that. I'm surprised the cat's not on this list. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 vote for the, I vote for the cat. Um, <laughs> and I like the fact that uh, the cat in Fear Eyes only knew that uh, Blowfell was going to die, and so he ran away. <laughs> he, <runs off. laughs> he knew where his bread was buttered. Yeah, they actually set Blowfell up quite early on in yeah. Rush with Love, or you don't know who he is. Um, and much the same in the books, that yeah. you set up in things like Thunderball as the head of Spectre. Um, but really what makes it, that's the, that, that's the thing that makes him such an effective villain. He's the head of this worldwide organisation that has nothing to do with Russia, America or England. Mm. And that is out for itself. And he's got one of the coolest plans, which is steal all their space probes. Yes. And bring him back to the um, the hidden volcano. But he is actually quite chilling um, in You Only Live Twice. Yeah. Partly because of, it, and it, a lot of it to do is with Roald Dahl's writing. Yes. Because Roald Dahl wrote the script for... You know, it's what that a lot of it is also Donald Pleasant's very understated performance. Doesn't go overboard. And his piranhas. His piranhas are awesome. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there, there, there are subtleties and nuances to Donald Pleasant's performance. I mean, you get a, a feeling for Blofeld as an actual character, as opposed to, as you were saying earlier, as a caricature. Mm-hmm. So that brings us here to our number one. Um, I know a couple of people on this panel were hoping it was Alec, but I'm sorry, you got pipped at the post. By Oric Goldfinger. Oh, Mr. Martin, I expect you to die. Uh, of course, played by Gert Frobe. Reading recently that uh, Goldfinger was banned in Israel mm. because Gert Frobe was connected with the Nazi party. But um, mm. it was discovered later on that he was actually protecting Jewish families during the war. Okay. And um, a bit, yeah, a bit like um, Schindler. Okay. So, uh, in the same sort of way. Cool. So, he was connected with them, but it was like a double agent type mm. job. What so, a legend! Yeah. Oh, now I love this guy even more. <laughs> God, he's just Goldfinger is just brilliant in the fact that he's just he's is unfit, you know, he's overweight dude. His face is always ruddy and red, and he always looks like he's about to die because you know just can't because he can't breathe, and just uh, I mean the way he's introduced is he's, he's you know playing you know, hustling people at the, the at the beach. I mean the major villain is is hustling people <laughs> on the beach, and uh, he's just he's just he's just awesome. But then he just turns into this this chilling. Major villain, <laughs> he just wants to. Wants, he just loves gold. <laughs> so that, that, <laughs> it's so camp. That, that, that awesome. opening is actually quite 
um, kind of interesting because you know, as you say, it does it sets him up as just being a, a small time card show. Yeah, you just like mm. who is this guy? And then it then they ended by hitting you with the whammy of uh, Sheena, not Sheena Easton. I forget the um, the, the the actress's name. Were covered in gold. Yeah, yeah John Masterson's character. Yeah, yeah, um, John Masterson. Um, and that's where you really get a sense of that this is there's actually something more to there's something quite nasty about. He's he's clearly psychotic. Mm. I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, he's basically he's killed this poor girl by covering her in gold. Which you I mean, can't the science, I mean, science of it is obviously mm. silly, but that's a Bond film. Yeah, um, Ian, Ian Fleming started one of the great urban myths. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. by saying that you think the the skin breathes, yes, which of course it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not his only urban myth. What about well, the no. uh, what about that uh, homosexuals can't whistle? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of genetic makeup sort of thing, <laughs> and that uh, sumo wrestlers are they trained to suck their testes back up into their bodies? <laughs> It's like, come on. Come on, Ian. Do some research. He, he might have done this on purpose just to see how far it would travel. Well, mm. Goldfinger in general really became the model mm. for yeah. Bond villains from that point on. As did Anna Blackman. Mm. As did Anna Blackman. Yeah, with Bond. absolutely. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't just a bimbo on the side type thing. It was a, no, it was a really strong woman character. Yeah. Yeah. She's an awesome character. She's a brilliant character. So really, Bond could have been more effective if he just stopped playing and having dinner with the villains and just <laughs> kill the villains. It's, it's gotten to that point, Thank actually. Thank you, Scotty. Yeah. It's, like, it's, just, it's, just, it's just cut to the chase. Got to go get the gun. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot him. So, con- so continuing our theme, we've also got our worst pick for villain. Our worst villain, Gustav Graves, mm. as played by Toby Stevens in Die Another Day. My goodness. What He's a... terrible acting, terrible character, See, terrible uh, motivation. Just awful. He's got this weird little snarl that he does to say, oh, I am a villain. I, I don't know what he was trying to do, honestly. <laughs> but then I don't think anybody involved in that film knew what they were trying to do. Um, yeah, just... But a, but as a villain, Gustav Graves just is not... never is never a credible threat. Um, yeah. I never believe he's going to get one up on Bond. I believe Bond is always going to triumph over him. He's not um, uh, dangerous enough. No. They try to make him dangerous enough, you know, with all the fencing and the... Yeah, that fencing sequence is oh my god. Well, anything, any film that contains Madonna or the scene with Madonna is yeah. going to be bad. You know, yeah. it's oh, doomed right look. from the start. I'm totally with you. <laughs> the second she turns around, I'm yeah. like, oh, oh no, oh somebody please kill me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awful stuff. Anyway, we'll get back to that in the, in the film section. But uh, there was actually there's quite a few other villains that I thought were going to be in the in the worst list. Well, but you've got to make good stuff. Won it. Um, gotta remember mm. which with villains for the most part they're just sort of standard boring fare. Like the good ones are are memorable, but the even the bad ones are just more mediocre than anything else. They're just there to for Bond to punch. Yeah. Okay, so here we go to our top five Bonds. Mm. The men themselves. 007. It well it depends if you can include all the actors in the um the spoof casino royale. Yes, we do actually include I did actually David put in. David in, awesome. in there. Only because I was having trouble coming up with five because I hadn't seen enough Bond films to come up with five. <laughs> well so he And I only and I only came up with included. I only came up with four. Well if if um if you're talking about David Nip then if David Nip was on the list, there's something that I actually like to point out, which is that um, Ian Fleming actually wanted David Niven to play Bond in the first place. Well, David Niven's Divin. awesome. Mm. Oh, don't get me wrong, David is a top actor and would do very well. Mm. Um, but he was always Ian Fleming's choice mm. for Double um, Seven. It is interesting. Yeah, that, that, Ian Fleming, not a fan of Doctor No. Okay, NCP's top five Bonds starting at number five. 
Australia's own George Lazenby. <laughs> boy. I know we give we give him a lot of flack on this show, <laughs> George Lazenby, for his acting, but he really wasn't wasn't that bad as well. And I I'll agree. I'll go into bat for him. Oh, I agree. Look, he's not good by any stretch of the imagination, and it doesn't help that he's come after Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. But he's only in one. Yeah, exactly right. He's only in one film he at the end of the day. Could have been in seven. Mm-hmm. He got offered. Yeah. Seven. And it's probably good that he wasn't, but oh, then again, maybe not. Anyway, yeah, he's just not as bad as people say. No, I actually, I think he. I mean, I think he gets sort of short-handed. I mean, like Larry said in our last episode, it's just he. I mean, he's coming after Bond, uh, coming after Sean Connery. He's, you know, he's basically just being sort of thrown under the bus, sort of stuff. Yeah. It's like it's like here you go, he's Bond, be huge. Yeah, and he's like, you know, oh my god, and it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't help that it just. That uh, it was just universally hated. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's a bit kind of the same sort of thing that happened with Daniel Craig. Really, it's kind of like, like this guy's a Bond. He's and, got blonde uh, hair for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which you know, you know, whether you like him or don't like him, it turns out okay. But and then, but you know, poor George. I mean, I mean, he gave it his all, and it helped. I mean, it helps that he's in a good film. I mean, the is actually is, is actually very good. Yeah. It's just I just think it's just he's. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it suited him too because it's an action film and he's an action actor. Yeah. And I think the as I was saying before, I think his voice is the problem. Yeah. Uh, his voice is so mm-hmm. grating for Bond. There's no class to his voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you sort of lose lose focus with him early on in the film. Whereas when he stops talking and actually just does the action sequences later on, and I think he's got great chemistry with yeah. Diana Rigg as well. I think with Diana Rigg's character Tracy, I think I don't think Connery would have had as good a chemistry. I don't think it would have worked because he's not connected to, with women as well as George I, I couldn't see a Sean Connery Bond falling in love. No, and getting married. Not. I just mm. couldn't see it happen. And same with sort of Roger Moore because yeah. he, he's disdain for all women. Yeah. As, but George Lazenby's Bond, I, I, I could see it. I could believe it. He had a heart. Mm. It was James Bond with a heart. Did he? Um, did he? Uh... Did he get the accent right? You said his voice was grating. Did he get the accent right? Oh, he was such an Australian. He was like somebody from <laughs> yeah. Neighbours doing I'm Bond. He was James Bond. 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 He was Bond. 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 This never happened to the other fella. <laughs> That's a classic line. Yeah. Kind of like, what? Actually, Bond. I, I really like that because yeah. I love, the, I love it when they break the fourth wall. Just, yeah. in every, anything I watch, I don't care. I like it. But it doesn't work for him. It actually works against yeah. him because yeah. he's coming after Connery. Yeah. So it basically yeah. just emphasises the fact that, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. I'm not watching Connery. Mate, I'm not Connery. <laughs> I'm Bond. And they could never have stuck... Bond, mate. James Bond. <laughs> they could never have stuck Sean Connery in that disgusting brown suit and made yeah. it look so great. Well, Sean Connery looked look fantastic in anything. Yeah. He gets to wear a kilt. He does. <laughs> he does, yeah. He's Bond. Uh, George. You made the list, George. Um, well done, George. And I'm glad you... We love you. Okay, coming up at number four, Timothy Dalton. A good Bond and bad Bond films. Yeah, I feel sorry for Timothy Dalton. He's actually a great actor. And I would have loved to have seen him given a script like Casino Royale. I think he would have just absolutely blown that version of Bond away. But unfortunately, he's a great Bond in two bad films. And they are really bad. Timothy Dalton was offered on Her Majesty's Secret Service and turned it down. And that's, that's a well. shame. I think he that would have done shame. really yeah, well with that. Because he thought he was too young. young. Yeah. Yeah. And, they and he was right. He was too young. Yeah. And they offered it again to him for Live and Let Die. Yeah. Um, and he turned it down again because he thought he was too young. It's actually interesting the way that they cast Bond because um, when they were doing it originally, before they got Sean Connery, they tried to go for people like um, Cary Grant and James Mason who weren't going to commit to a series of films. And then the next one they went to was Roger Moore. Cary Grant is born. He was, he was oh, booking like to, to do the saint. He was booking to do the saint. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you know, then they try to get Timothy Dalton for on a Majesty's Secret Service, and then for Live and Let Die, and Live and Let Die introduced Roger Moore, 
Yeah. Mm. Okay. And then when they tried to get, uh, when, then when they were doing Living Daylights, one of the people they went for is Pierce Brosnan, who couldn't yeah. do it because of Remington Steel. Yeah. yeah. So they got yeah. Timothy Dalton instead. And then they ended up getting Pierce Brosnan. We should have done our top five of people who should have been Bond. <laughs> Can I just mention too that one of the things that ruined Timothy Dalton before he even got the chance to settle into Bond, they were trying to make him, they were clear, he was obviously trying to play the book Bond. Yeah. Yeah. And they were taking huge elements of the book Bond away from him yeah. to be able to yeah. use and to create that character. Well, to, and so, to play the blind yeah. Bond. And so, in, yeah, and so in the end, he, he just did two films that weren't Bond films. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, a, and the second one was just a... It's basically just an 80s action film. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and that's yeah. what brings me back to the point I made at the start of this. I would have loved to have seen him with Casino Royale, where they did actually try to get more of the book Bond into it. I would have loved to have seen him do that. I would have liked him in GoldenEye, actually. Yeah, I think he would I have done a great job there as well. Not that Pierce does a bad job. Mm. I mean, GoldenEye's brilliant. But it, uh, Timothy Dalton in GoldenEye... Mm. would work mm. okay so that brings us to our number three Daniel Craig oh my god Daniel Craig like I said uh, before is uh, when he was uh, when it was notified that he was being cast as a huge internet backlash I mean really really nasty stuff and, but uh, deserved no, I no just, not he, at all I think he proved them all wrong no, and in fact that was that was how it went online yeah. um, everybody was saying god no and then Casino Royale came out and everyone said oh my god he was brilliant yeah um, oh, look, I think Daniel Craig is the perfect Bond for Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, where they, they've, they've altered the character, they've tried to make it darker, um, brought in more elements from the book, um, removed some of the more over-the-top elements. And I think for those two films, I think the problem with Daniel Craig actually comes from Skyfall, which we covered in greater detail in the last episode, so I won't go into it Skyfall was again, a far but... better film than Casino Royale. No way. Uh, I but we'll get into that, that later. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, he, he was the right Bond to cast at the right time for the type of films that they were doing. Um, and then they changed it. Then yeah. They changed it in Skyfall, and all of a sudden, his failings as Bond actually become apparent because they're trying to have him play a different type of Bond, and he's not the right person for that. But I think based on his performance in Casino Royale and in Quantum of Solace, I think he deserves to be where he is. Um, I kind of disagree. I actually don't find him to be particularly charismatic and for me Bond's got to be and that playing Bond has to have something uh, a light behind the eyes that you know it sort of leads to their that instinctual he's that, not a nice person absolutely. but you want to like him yeah and for me Daniel Craig doesn't have that but that's, I see, that's I see him, I see him as, I see him as very uh, uh, I see him as too much of a blank slate he is meant to be a spy yes and you're not meant he's not meant to be a big public figure but at the same time I don't get the um, the intellect and the mind, oh, the I instinctual. Disagree. Yes, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think that there is a meant to be a light behind his eyes in this version of the character. I think there's actually meant to be a darkness there, and I think that's very. No, no, not, I don't mean lightness in terms of lightness mm. of being. I mean lightness in terms of um, there's a spark in his. Yeah. That, it, yeah. That, it's not no, no, that. No, I his think look that's definitely there. Yeah. His look is a, And look, one thing I'll say about Daniel Craig is he is a good actor. And he is playing James Bond. He is acting James Bond out very well. Yes. But then. When you are focused on him, it is not James Bond. You are watching an actor play James Bond. You are not watching James Bond. And that's the problem with Daniel Craig. Mm. He is not no. James Bond. Yeah, no, totally disagree. He no. is exactly the James Bond as designed for those films. I agree. He's, he's 
I, I, he, is, he, he looks he is, like a madman. He, he is he is the post 9-11 James Bond. He is yeah. unwatchable mm. as no, James Bond. Absolutely not. Absolutely yes, unwatchable. Completely unwatchable. Uh, and you talk, you talk about Timothy Dalton having Goldeneye. If Pierce Brosnan had Casino Royale, the problem it would have been totally different and of course so it would much have been better totally for him instead of giving him the rubbish that he was given after Goldeneye. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't think Pierce could have done Casino Royale. Not no. as, as it was filmed. No. In the same way that Skyfall, yeah, in the same way that Skyfall shows us how Daniel Craig isn't a Pierce Brosnan type of Bond. Yeah, Pierce should have done Skyfall. Yeah, I think Pierce would have yeah. been yeah perfect in Skyfall. Mm. Um, but I don't think he would have been right for Casino Royale. Timothy Dalton, yes, but mm. not not Daniel, Pierce Daniel Craig should be doing Lockstock and Barrel type movies. He's a thug. That's what so what you're saying is he's built, what, as, a, but that's he's built what, as a thug. But that's he's, what Bond like is. Thug, that's what Bond is in the post. But, he, but he's world. got no class. Daniel Craig has no class. James Bond still has so much class. He oozes class, and oh, Daniel yeah. Craig has that, none of that, that class. I agree. That, that I agree that with. I but when, that's he, when not, he's in the suit, I was like, oh, this just doesn't look right. No. This, looks, this looks like a kid who's wore the suit for the first time. Yes, exactly. So what you're all saying is that you can't have the same person playing Bond in every film. No. So that means that Bond isn't a consistent character. If he was, you could have the same person true. playing Bond in every film. Mm. Well, Bond is Bond is very much a reflection of the time in which the films that he's in are made. You know, the Sean Connery Bond is different to the Roger Moore Bond and, mm. and so on. And, and that's where I think Daniel Craig works because he is reflective of a different type of Bond um, that is playing up certain he's aspects grunge of the Bond. character. <laughs> I think James Bond's like Johnny Farnham. What? <laughs> coming back. I, voice? I think it doesn't matter whether you love or hate John Farnham. I'm talking about around the time of Whispering Jack. Right, it, di- okay. it didn't matter whether you loved or hated John Farnham. You appreciated his talent. You almost loved the character of John Farnham and you wanted him to succeed. And I think after Die Another Day, uh, I think people love James Bond in general. Uh, whether they like their films or not, they love the character of James Bond. And I think after Die Another Day, that everybody thought the franchise was dead, yep. that, that they couldn't do it anymore because they were making such a mess of it. And if you couldn't work it with Pierce Brosnan, you couldn't work James Bond. And I think when Casino Royale came out, that everybody, like Whispering Jack, everybody wanted it to work. And the film was good without being great. It was good. And I think they would have accepted anybody as James Bond as long as he was passable. And Daniel Craig was passable. But that... And I think that's why there was a, a public acceptance because I was thinking, thank God, it wasn't so much him. They were thinking, thank God that you know James Bond is back and is working. Okay, moving on to number two, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. He was just all class. Even mm. even the the atrocious die another day, he was still good. Well, he was the best. obvious choice after having seen Remington Steel, wouldn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. In spite of the fact that uh, from Tomorrow Never Dies through to Die Another Day, he's in two awful films and one at best mediocre film he himself carries himself with um weight with, with elegant and class and uh, a really still a really good bond in spite of the fact that the films were um of varying quality yeah. yeah and he has the ability to uh the the thing i love about him is he has the ability to almost combine the strengths of connery and more hmm. like he has the ability to be that serious nasty person but at the same time he's got that twinkle that more had that comic relief almost, but not over the top like Moore had. Yep. And he's able to blend the two together really well and almost, you know, believe that that you can see the both both of them in him. It's just unfortunate that um, really the writers couldn't figure out which type of Bond they were doing mm. in those movies. 
as the series of Brosnan movies progressed, they seemed to move more and more into Roger Moore mm. territory. Um, oh, whereas, yeah. whereas they'd found that, that perfect balance that Craig was talking about between the different types of Bond, they found that in Goldeneye. Yeah. You know, they had just the right level of quips to go, you know, and sort of comedic relief to go with, you know, the more serious story. I wish they could have just kept that model going yeah. throughout the subsequent movies. And mm. unfortunately they couldn't, and they just got sillier and sillier as they went along. And unfortunately it does taint Pierce Brosnan's time as Bond. Mm. But as Luke said, in no way does it taint his actual performance. He tries his best, even when they just give him the absolute minimalist stuff mm. to work with. I agree. Yeah, so that brings us to our number one, our number one Bond. Um, there's no surprise here. Actually, for the first time in any time we've ever done these top fives, every single person voted for this person. And that is, of course, Sean Connery. To uh, whole generations, he, he is Bond. Well, just to point out how much he is number one, I've not actually seen a whole Sean Connery all the way, film all the way through and still made him my number one. He's just brilliant. And it's, it's, it's interesting that Ian Fleming didn't actually like him at all yes. uh, when he saw Dr. No, but eventually then grew on him and then incorporated Sean Connery's own heritage into the character of Bond yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. The Scottish um, the, the Scottish heritage sort of started to creep through and um, things like that. Having said that, he only wrote two more novels after um, Dr. No because he, mm. he died in 64. Yeah. yeah. But you would not have Bond without Connery. Connery was the first, and he carried it through. In, any, in anyone's mind, he is the coolest, he is the classiest, he is the toughest. What I'm missing, he is the guy who I think, the, the phrase, uh, men want to be him, women want to be with him. Mm. Um, I, think, I think they were thinking of Bond, and in particular, Sean Connery. Yep. Um, he was um, the one, and the interesting thing that mum said was that, because my mother grew up with the books and watching the films, was that, there was no one like him. Mm. Um, no one was doing the stuff. It was no one had that grand sense of opulence um, that Bond himself possessed. Um, but no one had the toughness, the the street level. No one carried that off with the toughness that Sean Connery had. That sort of street level Glasgow thug mm. that Sean Connery could do very well back back then. There was no one like him. He was. He sort of. He, I sort of picture him as sort of the guy that would go to a soccer match, mm. get into a riot. Then go home and listen to wag, uh, to listen to the opera mm. with a chardonnay. Yeah, you know it was just it was or a amazing. Cognac or a, cha- yeah. or a chill vodka martini. Yeah, yeah. it's just he, he's he combines all of the aspects of I think he combines the best and most interesting aspects of the character from the books mm. yep. with the best and most interesting aspects that were introduced into the films mm. yep. and just balances all of it out mm. perfectly. And you could definitely I mean is I mean Bond's meant to be the ladies' man. I just I mean I can see Sean mm. Connery walking into a room and every yeah. girl's looking at him and. But also with with that still with that sense of Menace? detachment mm, and yeah. darkness yeah. and mm. you know I mean y- yes he has that he's very charismatic but you you also get that sense of here's a guy that's seen and done some pretty horrible things in his time yeah, yeah. Mm. and you get that it's always there you know you can still see it in his face and in his body language mm. and even when he's picking up women and you know charismatically controlling a crowd there's there's still that darkness about him and mm. I believe that he's willing to mix it up. Pierce Brosnan and Roger Moore, and to a certain extent Timothy Dalton, there was if you watch if you watch them as performers, they sort of back off a bit. Pierce Brosnan in the sword fight, Roger Moore in just about every fight scene he got into, and Timothy Dalton occasionally looking a bit unsure. Sean Connery, if there was a fight going on, I absolutely believe he'd be in the thick of it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and not unwilling to back down. 
And like Lazenby as well. Lazenby, Lazenby actually accidentally punches one of yeah. the stone yes. in the face. And they keep that scene here, which is hilarious. <laughs> that's the very start, isn't it? Where they yeah, right the start, on the beach. swing on the beach. Wild swing and... I love the scene too, um, where the two girls are fighting uh, and Connery's watching it. Yeah. And despite the fact that he's a misogynist, he's appalled by it. Yeah. And yeah. can't handle it. So there is a, a sense of... You know, the, the, he has some sort of moralistic... Uh, code anyway yeah. uh, in him so not like a normal person but at no. least something <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you be a normal person no, I, I guess there's, there's, his, there's his one plus <laughs> <laughs> so of course that uh, brings us to our worst um, and we've already mentioned that uh, even though Nibbin was part of the part of the selection uh, he wasn't in the list at all so that of course only leaves Roger Moore um, now Craig's what I find interesting is Craig's the only person who had Roger Moore in his top five list which I find incredible <laughs> Roger Moore's um, look I mean I understand you know Roger Moore was, was the Bond that you grew up with and to a lesser extent he was the Bond that I grew up with as well but when you watch those movies back now he is unbearably bad mm. his acting is abysmal he's, he's basically a caricature yeah. of Bond yeah. um, I'd like to point out that what he's doing is he's taking... Because he, Roger Moore was famous for playing the saint on television. Um, and he which, was fantastic that, as the saint. And he's great as the saint, but he, but he himself, I think, has more of the saint's characteristics, that sort of that uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek quality. Uh, I don't quite believe the situation, ready with a, a light-hearted quip. That's the saint's character. Leslie Charteris wrote the saint. Ian Fleming's um, hard-boiled spy is a different kettle of fish, and Roger Moore never manages to capture that, that sense of danger. It's interesting you say that because the criticisms I've heard of Pierce Brosnan are that he is playing Remington Steele. He's not playing James Bond. I never, uh, at, at no point um, did I ever think right. that Pierce Brosnan was playing yeah. anyone other than James Bond. He has mm. that icy yeah. sense of menace. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Remington Steele is actually an idiot. He's a bumbling yeah, fool. He is a total fool. I've never heard that criticism. Mm. So, yeah, whereas, whereas his, bond is, his Bond is very intelligent. Very and he comes sure. across as mm. very intelligent. Yeah. And, yeah, Remington Steele was a total moron. <laughs> yes. Roger... He was an actor pretending to be a private investigator, so I never got that at all. Yeah. Roger Moore isn't even good looking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> one, See, of the... Yeah, the, the only, one of the few things about Roger Moore that I actually quite liked with, with his bond was, he's, was he had this sort of devilish charm. Yeah. Um, but everything else, I just I just couldn't stand. It's just the, the, the fight scenes were horrible, and his attitude to women, well, even, even though Bond himself is a misogynist and, let's face it, a prick, Moore's attitude to women was more of a not just disdain; it was almost like he was just They're vicious. Species. And uh, as, but he treats he treated them as um, he treated them quite clearly as sex objects. There's a scene yeah. in uh, in Octopussy where they're doing they're going through um, uh, MI6 and Q, and there's a moment where uh, Bond's actually looking at through a camera, and it's of and it's of, of, of um, one of the secretary's chest, like yeah. her, her blouse is open and he's staring down, and that, that that's taking it too far. Bond, Bond doesn't need to do that. Yeah, I do have to say Roger Moore's got an awesome voice. Well, he's the most debonair by a mile. He's got so much more class than the, all all the rest of them put together for a start. But he is the Bond that I grew up with, so I am going to be slightly biased towards him, but solely for that reason. But to to um, defend his honour as far as women go, for your eyes only, with the young ballet girl, the blonde girl, yeah. one of the great classic lines when she comes on to him and he says, you just put your clothes on and I'll go buy you an ice cream. Yeah, but that's because, <laughs> but that's because, Roger, that's because Roger Moore himself actually said, this is ridiculous. Yeah. The girl's like 16. Yes. I'm 
you know, 60. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not having sex with this guy. So actually, I, I've, got nothing against, I've got nothing against Roger Moore. I just think he's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I mean, he's all class. I've yeah. got nothing against, but I just, he's Bond. That's, I mean, that, that scene doesn't ring true to me. Mm. Because uh, even though I know Roger Moore said, no, this is stupid, Bond, he's, he's Bond. Mm. His version of Bond, he would have done her in a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've no doubt in my mind. <laughs> his, his Bond is shallow. Unbelievably oh, shallow, without yeah. any of the nuances and characteristics that other actors playing Bond bring to it. Yeah. It just exists at this one level, and it's the saint level. But it worked brilliantly for one film. And that's the problem. It worked for one film. One film. <laughs> I'd say two films, but yeah. Hmm. It's, it will come to nobody's surprise that the quote I used at the beginning of the episode is from Roger Moore's Bond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so that of course uh, brings us to our top five films. Um, thank you for sticking with us so far. <laughs> so uh, we've got quite a few to choose from. We've come to our top five and our worst. A bit of controversy with our worst. Oh, we'll get to that in a sec. Our fifth Best Bond film, You Only Live Twice, 1967. Yeah. Tiger Tanaka. But, um, You're obsessed, dude. I am. But he deserves his own like, series of movies. Right. <laughs> you know is, what I mean. There is one really silly moment in this film, mm, and yeah. um, I'll let the others talk about that one, because I think uh, Richard in particular wants to <laughs> go to town on it. Um, but for the most part, this is, whilst it does have the over the top trappings of, uh, of Bond, um, you know, the. The secret base, the the the, um, the the villains with the. Slightly... Why do you call them trappings, though? I mean, they are. I mean, that's that's a Bond film. Mm. The no. secret base and the over the top. No, 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 no. So I don't mean that in a negative term. That's that, that, that's the, what I'm talking about. It, it, it has the elements of oh, okay, cool. a Bond film. I'm not saying I'm not using that in a negative term at all. Right. Um, but at the same time, it still comes across as a, a legitimate spy thriller. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think even those with those trappings, it has some of the best uses of those, especially the uh, volcano base. The volcano mm. base is brilliant. It's, it's, mm. it's probably my favourite Bond villain mm. base. Yeah, and it's not only because it's awesome, but also it's, it's practical and it serves the purpose of what the villain is trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah, it's not just there to go. Oh, our villain has to have a big over the top mm. base. I mean, he's using it for a specific purpose, mm. and its location yeah. on the island is there for a specific reason mm. as well. So. Which was one of many elements that have been were ripped off later on by other Bond stories. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I just think it uh, all, to, all told, it's a pretty it's a pretty engaging um, uh, story that that accept that accepts some of the ludicrousness of it, but it doesn't allow those ludicrouses ludicrousnesses, if I can invent a word there, <laughs> to um, overcome um, the story. It's still heavy on intrigue. There's a yeah. mystery as to what's going on. Um, oh, I'm with you. Actually, I agree. I, I think it's one of those one of those films that sort of that balances balances the line between this is the the nodding wink that we mm. know this is silly, yeah. mm. and the actual real spy mm. thrill. Once again, the weaknesses uh, in hindsight of all James Bond films are going to be technology. Mm. Yeah, and you know, not in when that film came out in '67. Um, that would have been amazing watching a, a rocket ship swallow another rocket ship, but obviously that doesn't. It's amazing, yeah. It's what are you talking about? I watched it last weekend, and yeah. I was like, "That's awesome!" It's very Thunderbirds. But unlike a lot of the um, the technology that has dated badly, um, particularly with the cars and the explosive, it, it, it's still within the realms of possibility, and the idea is still quite um, quite scary. Yeah. Uh, another uh, an organization that's not affiliated with a particular country. Whose agenda just seems to be terrorism for the sake of terrorism, mm. um, attempting to engineer a third world war between yeah. Russia and America by do, by capturing their shuttles yep. um, is actually quite a frightening one. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it does it quite well. And it has ninjas. And it has ninjas. It has ninjas. I'm, I'm sorry, no one else is going to bring this up. I'm afraid I've got to. Look, I, I, so I, I love this film. There, I specifically knew yeah, you were going to bring this up. <laughs> I love this film, and I would have ranked it higher, except for one bit. And that's the bit where um, James Bond is done up to look like a Japanese man. <laughs> it is it's not even remotely convincing and as great an actor as Sean Connery is his one failing has always been his inability to lose his Scottish accent the Russian submarine commander exactly right Um, and this is this is the one scene in the film I think um, Craig was saying earlier that um, you know that the 60s Bond films are you know they date well because of the kitsch nature of them Mm. but this is where I suppose the film goes from kitsch to camp and that this scene doesn't date well. And looking back on it, you know, it's actually kind of offensive. <laughs> um, it's, it's surprising they didn't dub his voice because they did that quite often in Bond films in yeah, the 60s. Yeah. Um, well, especially Lazenby, when he did the English accent yeah. on Her Majesty's Secret Service, they dubbed his voice. So yeah. and, I, and I wish they had it. But, but it's just a scene that, for me... It looks does, so unconvincing. Exactly right. And it, and it lessens the quality of the movie just for that one bit. But... The positive elements of the movie are so good that they do kind of um, outweigh. outweigh that quite well. But it, it does still just kind of stand out. And it's why I personally didn't rank the film higher. I actually do know the sequence you're talking about. And it actually wouldn't have looked out of place in a Get Smart episode. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but so I do like the fact that he's uh, he's the wife, the, the fake wife that's assigned to him. Mm. He treats her with respect. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he uh, does. She's actually a character in herself. She's, actually, yeah. she's yeah. Really quite useful. Like but and so many elements of, the, elements of the film have been ripped off by other Bond films. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I should mention that. Like, you know, the whole rocket ship swallowing is The Spy Who Loved Me and also Tomorrow Never Dies with, you know, the submarines and then, then the, yeah. the ships. And, uh, and of course, the volcano scene, which yep. I think Goldeneye yep. um, yeah. swallowed up as well. So. Yeah. I mean, whenever there's a James Bond spoof, there it, always it's, a, it's a volcano base, yes. <laughs> yeah. and inc- including the Incredibles. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, gotta love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on to number four Casino Royale, 2006. Not the David Dibbon version. In the top, no, the 2006 In the top five? In the top, no, not only in the top five, number four. Oh my gosh. What are you people thinking? <laughs> not not me, If it was the novels, well, yes. Well, in my defence, I've only seen two full Bond films and that was one of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I can't forgive the replacing Baccarat for poker. I'll never forgive that. Oh, so it's especially the fact that they didn't feel the need to uh, explain. explain the game. Okay, look, that's to the be, worst scene of the film for me. Is like, to be fair, uh, though, to on. be fair, though, they would have had to have done that regardless of the game. Yeah, because you got to remember whether it's baccarat or poker. There's going to be a lot of people out there who just don't know the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. But he always know. plays baccarat, and it's never been explained. No one's before. ever bothered to explain it before. No. I have no idea what they're talking what they're talking about. But the problem is the problem with Casino Royale. It is absolutely mm. key to the tension of that scene that you know what's going on. I just hate exposition just on the face of it. But my problem with Casino Royale is um, not, you know, being told how to play poker. Mm. Um, There's so many other elements um, that are wrong with it. More, I love how the fact we're talking about the things that we don't like. I was just going to say that exact thing. It's number four. Yes. <laughs> um, it made it to the but top I'll be, five. But to be quite clear, I'm not a fan of Casino Royale at all. I didn't vote for this. I mm. don't think it says uh, uh, anywhere near as good a film as people say. And part of the reason for that is that it's trying to um, have have it both ways trying to be the big explosive over the top Bond film and then be the more um, Ian Fleming style uh, spy thriller which, for, which Casino, the book Casino Royale is mm. and I don't think it manages to get that balance um, right at all 
the bit that I really do like is the pre-credit sequence where he's actually waiting for the guy in the office yeah. and they go through the whole well now you're a 007 you've got to kill two people but I think that's very well done because mm-hmm. um, that tells me exactly the type of approach they're going to take but then yeah. it, it throws it right off by having and it's a little bit longer than 20 minutes I'd include everything up until he gets to the casino as the bit that throws the film right off uh, but for me when he gets to the casino it brings it all back into focus again mm. and from that point onwards I think it becomes a great Bond film mm. I think it's ruined because of Vespa the, the film is completely poisoned by I Vespa. disagree with Because her character is so Get well... Get out of my house! So well well I'm not talking about the actress. People. I'm not talking about the actress or the actress's portrayal. I'm just, the, it's the way the character is written. I just, it's just a total confused mess. And it's very I clear disagree. in the book as to what she is and what she's about. And I just think it's just... It just detracts from the rest of the film uh, for me. The character no, I best, disagree entirely. So, okay. I think she's one she's of the more brilliant. I think she's one of the more just... interesting and complex Bond women in that she's actually a character for a change. Diana Riggs' character, who I've now forgotten her name, Christmas and um, Best. Sorry, that's yes. The the the, the ultimate Tracy. Bond women. Or Countess Tracy. Teresa. Yeah, Countess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> the more we talk about this film and I did see this film and I have witnesses because I went to the had to see it because I went with these guys they, they, they know I was there the more we talk about it the more I realised I really don't remember much of this film at all <laughs> I have no idea who Vespa is and I think by the time we get to that point in the movie that Luke's talking about I'd lost all interest and just stopped paying attention well, the film is too long, yeah, and it's three separate stories that just don't gel together for me. I think it's two so separate it's stories, long, and yeah. I think that um, it's, that's it's, it's only that chase scene. So that's what I was about to bring up. Only that chase scene. But bring up. So who voted for it then? Well, I, I had to vote for it. I'd only no, no, seen no, two bomb but, films. No, 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 how do you get dig If because we we all really talked about our negatives. No, let me talk about some positives. I've talked about the positives. The positives. The opening sequence, although it took too long, is so well done. Yeah. It's just amazing. It's, it's oh, so the, different. Yeah. The opening sequence was scene. my top yeah. opening That's exactly sequence. It's not a car chase, it's not an aeroplane fight, it's not a boat race. It's totally different. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's well shot and yeah. it actually tells you about the character. Yeah. It's like the, the, way he, the way he chases this guy tells you about this. This is the sort of... I mean, you've got the, the opening pre-credit sequence, which is genius. Yeah, that's mm. what I was talking about. As well as then, as the way he chases this guy, there's, there's no nuances here. There's none of that... You know, whatever that crap's called, that French name where they jump on buildings and stuff. Yeah. It's just parkour. Yeah, parkour. There's none of that rubbish. He's just bulldozes his way through whatever gets in his way mm-hmm. and to accomplish the mission. And it's just, that's exactly the bond we're at now. God, it's awesome stuff. I'm still talking. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why I put my hand up some and more, just jump in. Some, some, more, uh, some, some more good stuff. And it's just, and, and Vesper is amazing. I mean, Vesper is, as a character, She's she's basically the, the only person. I mean that that bit where they're talking on the train. It just feels so natural and and realistic. And I mean her betrayal is is, is, is I just I can't. Like, I don't even know who she is. I can't remember her at all. Well, she's she's the main woman in the film. Yeah, <laughs> I obviously fell asleep. <laughs> she's she's unlike any woman in any other Bond film, and that's why I think she works really since, well since since Countess Tracy. Yeah, I, I'm actually convinced that Bond could actually fall for this woman. Exactly. So, um, and I, I did mention this. And I want to mention another positive oh. here, and I have mentioned it in the last show. But um, I just want to say Judy Dench's M. Yeah. In Casino Royale, brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Okay, enough about Casino Royale because wow, didn't know it was going to be such a polarizing. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> it did. Was amazing. Um, that was cool. Uh, number three, Goldfinger. Oh, you said him up again. Okay, nineteen sixty-four. 
um, the the template for all Bond films after him. Mm. Yeah. It's just it, it's got it's got all of it. The the over the top villain. Mm. God, he's awesome. Uh, yeah, the, the, the 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 base, the henchman, the ridiculous plot. <laughs> yeah. Irradiating gold. <laughs> this is this is what I was saying before about the difference between a Bond film and a film. Mm. Because as a Bond film, I just it has to be number one as a Bond film. Yeah, it has everything. Not not just as not as, as a film, maybe not, but as a Bond film, it's it is what Bond is and what has Bond has become. It all started with Goldfinger. Well, as David said, it, it, it is the template. I mean, the, fir- <laughs> the first two were good spy films, yeah. Doctor Bond No and, and From Russia with Love were great spy films. But as a Bond film mm. and everything we we think of, if you ask us the superlatives or or the, or the different things that are the templates for Bond. It's all Goldfinger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a bit of that doesn't mean it's not done better later on. No, no, that's correct. It takes the template and then improves upon it. Yes. we get to number one. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to actually talk about, which is I think that one of the reasons why this had impact, especially at the time, was that, as you said, the previous two Bonds were, um, uh, you know, standard spy thrillers. Mm. Um, with, a bit of, with a bit of the overtop uh, villainous stuff in Dr. No. Mm. Um, but before that, if you take Bond away completely the, in terms of mainstream culture and popular culture there was nothing like Goldfinger yeah yeah. you know this, this forget 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 the effect this had on on the Bond franchise the effect this had on action films on um, on movies in general you know we wouldn't have modern action film without Goldfinger yeah um, this this set. Did you for that what Star Wars did for sci-fi? Without yeah, a doubt. and and you probably wouldn't get sci-fi without some of these elements creeping in. Mm. Anyway, you can't <laughs> quite um, you can't overstate Goldfinger's importance, not just to Bond, but to pop culture in general. Yeah, um, it, it it allowed for grandness and opulence, with a bit of decadence thrown in, to be um, to be more widely accepted. And it was only beaten by one point by our number two, Doctor No, mm. the, the original, one, the one that started it all. I think Dr. No comes back to what you were saying earlier in relation to Goldfinger, where Goldfinger is, you know, the defining James Bond film and all the elements that we now relate to Bond are now in that. Dr. No, because there was no Bond film before it, um, Dr. No is just a great film. Mm -hmm. It is a great spy film. It is a great character piece. It is a great villain piece. No gadgets. No gadgets. None of the, none of the, the stuff that White became bikini? the standard. Is that, a, is that a gadget? The white bikini. <laughs> I don't think it's a gadget, but, but yeah, there, there's none of there's none of the there's none of the the gadgets and most of the tropes and things that became a part of the Bond franchise later on. Which means it also doesn't have, you know, those being overused or the, those elements that just become sort of more contrived as it went along. This just as a film in and of itself, mm. it's just an amazing movie to watch. Mm. It's in, it's wonderfully shot, yeah. beautifully acted. And yeah, and it's just it's it's more subtle than a lot of the later Bond films. Um, it's not as over the top, um, mm. and I just love it. It's it's probably the one that I actually go back to watch the most these days. Um, it's just amazing film. And Ursula Andress is a really underrated Bond. Oh, she's not an underrated Bond girl, but I think the reason why she's such a great Bond girl is underrated because of because of her innocence. She's not yeah. the standard Bond girl who's evil or you know or out to you know have sex with him or anything like that she's just a sweet innocent girl who's minding her own business just yeah. loves what she loves doing she and just drawn gets drawn into, into the, yeah. the whole yeah. world yeah and, and so you feel for her you have yeah. this especially that scene where they're getting chased along the beach 
and uh, and she's you can just look at her face. She's like, "What the hell am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Why is this happening to me?" Yeah, and she detests. She's appalled by the. Yeah, she's. What her. is all this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. crazy. Mm. And also, I mean, it, it comes along when you're, you're at the height of the Cold War, mm. and you're at the height of you know the technological aspect of the Cold War, and and it presents yes a fanciful version of that, but um, it kind of popularizes and um, I guess mythologizes. And yes, I've probably just made up a word there myself. <laughs> The Cold War as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's amazing. Well, that brings us to our number one, uh, which deals with not the Cold War, but sort of the, the fallout mm. from the Cold War. Uh, nice segue there, if I do say so myself. Um, the winner by a clear margin, and mainly probably because, because of me and Luke, uh, GoldenEye from yep. 1996. Yep. Um, GoldenEye to me is the perfect Bond film. I mean, it takes, it takes Goldfinger mm. and just ramps it up to 11. But the, yeah. the, but instead of just going through the motions, there is an attempt to actually analyse and dissect just what Bond means in the post Cold War world, mm. um, and you know there's you know several references to him um, being a bit of a relic mm. um, that he doesn't actually fit in, and I think that's nicely ha- that that's nicely played up. You've got that nice that great scene between him and M and M's office where she calls him a, a sexist misogynist dinosaur, mm. you know pointing out that his way doesn't work or really shouldn't work anymore and yet she, when he leaves out of the office she gives him a, a bit of a smile hoping that he comes back alive knowing full well that ultimately whatever you throw at him he is going to be the one of the job but the, the real thing that really makes this work and we've discussed this earlier on is the relationship he has with um, Alex Trevelyan that's the thing about around which the whole film is centred you know it's um, uh, the thing that holds it together and that's, the, that's where the commentary on who Bond is the whole these guys are reflections of Bond thing really starts with um, really starts with them in the graveyard and they yeah. get that wonderful scene and it's brilliantly shot too if it, it's very simply shot but mm. Martin Campbell who directed it um, has uh, Alec has um, Sean Bean always on the left side of the screen mm. and he always has uh, Pierce Brosnan on the right side of the screen and he does it for all their scenes hinting at the animosity. Um, but also at the, at the friendship as well. They are always going to be on one side of each other, um, but there is a closeness to that, and that's e- the, the filmmaking itself um, brings their relationship to light. Uh, this is it is my favorite Bond film, mm. and to go with what Craig said earlier on, this is the film that was this was my Bond. Mm-hmm. I was a fourteen year old lad when I watched this for the first time, and I walked yep. out of the cinema. I knew I was already already a Bond fan. Connery was already my favorite Bond, mm. but I was blown away walking out of the cinema. I saw this twice. And I've seen it dozens of times since. Yeah. And it's, it's, by no, it's by no means a perfect film. I mean, um, Cummings, mm. Cummings' character is a bit ridiculous. Mm. Let's be honest here. Yeah, but um, entertaining. And, yeah, entertaining, entertaining. But the you know the the king of the world invincible. thing is, is invincible. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, it's ridiculous. Um, but I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's got everything. I mean, mm. Alec Trevelyan is a convincing and excellent villain. Xenia mm. on the top, one of the greatest henchmen or henchwomen yeah. in this in this case, with his ridiculous killing style and. The orgasms where she fires and guns yes. and stuff—it's just over the top, ridiculous, but awesome. And just and it just it flows so well. I mean, mm. it just it uses it uses all the tropes in in the best possible way that they could have. Yeah, you know what I mean. And I also I also love Coltrane's character, Robbie Coltrane's character, who yeah. carries on into the other Pierce Brosnan films and yeah. dies in a crappy way. Yes, yeah. in uh, World Is Not Enough. And, but I just, um, I just love him as a character. He's just awesome. And I've got to mention this because I do, I do like him. Joe Don Baker. Yeah, as, um, fantastic. Jack Wade. Yeah. He's effectively playing um, the character he was famous for in um, Edge of Darkness. Yeah. Um, but does it so well. Yeah. And, well, and, a, and a good Bond girl as well. I mean, the, yeah, the, the Russian, the Russian girl. But I mean, she's, she's, 
Yeah, she, I mean, she's, she, mm. she can take care of herself when she, when she needs to and yeah. basically has her own sort of little, sort of little plot and then they get together. And, well, you know, once again, she's also a sympathetic character, but more importantly, she's an actual character. Yeah, she's an actual like, character. She's not just there for eye candy. Mm. She actually serves a purpose in the story and is a character you can relate to. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because in previous films, they do their utmost to um, sexualise um, the woman right from the get-go, and yet um, it starts off she's a, a low-level computer programmer um, wearing long skirts and cardigans. The geeky girl becomes hot. The, the, <laughs> no, well, she's always a tr- she's always a, a beautiful girl, but mm. yeah. But I mean, she's not. But they don't go out of their way to draw attention to you know how good she mm. looks or how radiant how radiant how her skin shines in the sunlight. <laughs> she's actually quite. Um, She's not wearing a white bikini when no, you first see her. Not when you first see her, but there is that scene when they are on the beach and the camera angle, I just, I, I hate it. It's just, it's Keith, it's Bond head and her walking towards him. And it's yeah. basically just her pubic region. Yeah. <laughs> in right smack bang in the, in the middle of the frame. It's like, what, what is the point of this scene? So there you go. I think more important <laughs> for me though was this film had to happen. Mm, yeah. Like the Bond franchise was basically dead in the water. I was no, just going to mention that. It's a, it's a similar principle to Casino no, before. If, if you wanted more Bond yeah. films, well, I didn't want more Bond it. films. But we thought that <laughs> we thought it was dead because yeah, the, well, because truly. the Dalton era really killed it. Yeah. License to Kill really killed the whole franchise. Yeah, yeah. that's. I, I mean, I, I, at no that one point, to I touch thought, it. Yeah, I thought that was it. There's no more Bond films. This yeah. franchise has died. I could live happily with it. Okay, as a Bond fan, <laughs> I thought this is it. You know, yeah. this is it. And the, the fact Bond that the film was so good yeah. it impacted yeah. everybody, Bond fans, even more. Yeah. So there's the best. Now the worst. Now I actually mm. disagree with this. I'm disappointed that this was picked because, judging from what we've been talking about yeah. for most of the episode, you would think it would be Die Another Day, but it is in fact Moonraker. Which is unfair. It is unfair. Yeah. Rubbish. I thought it would They've be got laser, laser gun fights in space. It's hindsight. I, it's hindsight. I um, picked Octopussy. Yeah, I know. Octopussy is, for me, the worst Bond film. And you, you can really say there's, a, there's a, a great stretch between Moonraker and Octopussy in which there is not one single good film. Absolutely. In, yeah. that, in, that, in the five films that get made from Moonraker, Moonraker, Few Rise Only, um, A View to a Kill, sorry, four films, A View to a Kill, Octopussy. Not one good film amongst them. And that, that that's why I, I chose Moonraker. I think Moonraker was just a, the clear example of everything that was wrong with Bond at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, because there wasn't a good Bond film made from that point onwards, to me that was the franchise killer. Now, I know from a financial perspective that's not the case, but from my personal perspective, it was like, that's it. You know, and it wasn't until Goldeneye came along that for me Bond became great again, um, and that that's why I chose Moonraker. Moonraker at all. I, really I, I saw I, I saw Moonraker when it came out on the big screen after yeah, seeing you... Star Wars and you know the start of that whole sci-fi culture that, yeah. that reignited at that time, and it was a fantastic, it was wonderful viewing on on the big screen to see James Bond. In the in a, a sci-fi film, and he, it's he, just I, a, what do you think he's doing? Attempting re-entry? Well, it's, it's, just, just, it's just classics now. It yeah, is. But you love just, bad films. <laughs> oh, that's true. You know? But it's just in hindsight that it's it's aged so badly. It yeah. looks so terrible, and it, the oh, whole it thing is just cool. a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've got to say it now. Even as a kid, growing up, loving Bond and being the biggest fan of space, and being part of the Star Wars generation, even then. Moonraker sucked. I've got to say, Moonraker always sucked. I mean, it's got it's got a special place in my heart because it's actually the first Bond film I ever saw, Um, and 
It's so ridiculously over the top. And that was my, my first introduction to Bond. And I was like, yeah. what, what, who is this guy? <laughs> Seriously, this is insane. I, I can watch Moonraker and laugh. There's one Bond film that I refuse yeah. to watch. I will not watch it. The way he takes care of Dad. <laughs> yes. So over the door, just one spool, there's this one step, just gently pushes him <laughs> in. It's all good. It's, all, it's, like, it's no. like someone you know, suffocating the, the, the dear old ground with a pillow to sort of take her out of her misery. So it's like, just here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I admit that, that, that I had to toss up between three films, mm. and it was Moonraker, Die Another Day. And Octopussy, because they're all abysmal. Yeah. Our best of Bond. Uh, and worst. And and the worst. It's, uh, god damn, that's been, <laughs> it's been a journey. <laughs> wow. Never done as more, much more research for this episode than I have any other episode. And uh, now that we've gone through it, I'm glad we did, because that was hilarious. Yes. And Jeez. when is Stephen Moffat going to write a James Bond film? Uh, hopefully never, because he's terrible. What? <laughs> don't, don't get that. That's a different <laughs> argument. Move on. <laughs> Overrated hack. Oh, oh, oh I think my side just came <laughs> well, we'll, have to, we'll have to argue that on another episode. Vesper Stephen Moffat. You, you opened the gates. <laughs> moving on. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we definitely, obviously, we definitely did. Um, if you have your opinions on uh, the best uh, Bond uh, through the categories that we went through, or just any other uh, opinion on Bond in general, please, by all means, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, especially, especially, fives. especially, uh, yeah, your own top fives, but also, why was Die Another Day not the worst of the films? I, I don't get it, but anyway, I just collect the facts. Okay, just coming up next, coming soon. Okay, coming soon in cinemas December 13, we get The Rise of the Guardians, uh, which is about a whole bunch of fictional characters. Oh, is that the one with like Santa Claus yeah, and Easter, Easter Bunny and stuff get together the same world? Um, yeah, I'm sort of curious about it. Yeah, I don't know. I'll pass. But oh, I don't. It's an interesting idea. I mean, we're oh, I like that whole League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of feel to it. But the Walt Newton, but for Santa Claus. Yeah, but, well, but <laughs> for, for holiday for holiday characters. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is an intriguing one: the odd life of Timothy Green, about a childless couple who uh, put all their wishes for what they what a, you know a child would be like in a box and then buried in the garden, and then young Timothy Green appears. And uh, that's weird. And according to the poster, has leaves growing out of his ankles, which I don't know if that happens in the film, but that's what happens on the, on the poster. So I don't know, an intriguing one, very strange. Okay, it's got an interesting eye, like Hook. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder what the actual plot of the film is from that point. And then on, uh, there's a whole bunch of other films that are coming out, uh, but they're the only ones that I thought were interesting. And then uh, December twenty, we get The Guillotines, which is a uh, a Asian film about uh, China, an elite group of. Uh, killers in China who threw their weapons at their, at their enemies. So, so it's a video game in film form. Basically. <laughs> they don't cut around But the, the trailer looks awesome. They don't cut around guillotines. <laughs> no, no, indeed. So that's it for uh, episode 39. Um, it was full on stuff. Don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or you can post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast where you can check out the the post where I, I saw someone wearing our t-shirt at High Point Shopping Center. Yay! How awesome is that? So I went there for lunch, because that's the closest shopping center to my work. Mm-hmm. And there's a dude wearing the New Culture Show podcast t-shirt. Is he? So I'm like, I'm like, thank you very much. Took okay, did, did you go up and actually shots. introduce well, yourself? Strangely enough, I didn't introduce myself. Because 
I don't know. For some strange reason, I got kind of shy, which is kind of the complete opposite of what I'm like at the conventions. Mm. I mean, I don't talk to anybody. But I don't know. For some reason, I found it kind of odd. odd. But I took some uh, some sneaky photos. So that was pretty cool. And also, you can tweet us at at NerdCultureCast or leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. And more importantly, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Get some more genius episodes like the one that we just had. Awesome stuff. And you... don't don't forget to wear our t-shirt in public as well. That's right. Because that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't forget to wear clothes in public in general. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> and even if it's just our t-shirt, I'll accept that. Yeah, as long that. as it's the NCP t-shirt. That's, all that's right. Means. You need more NCP in your life. That's right. Wear the t-shirt while listening to the episode. So that's it from me and the crew. Richo. You know I'm all out of bond lines. <laughs> no! Luke. We aim to please. was the first one I could think of. And Crystal. I've cast the next James Bond in my mind. Oh, mm. yes. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yep, I was going to say the same thing. You know, that's actually been one that's been put up quite a lot. That and Clive Owen were the two that seemed mm. to be popular. Clive oh, Owen, No. Because he's hot. I want Clive Owen with a carrot stick. <laughs> <laughs> and Craig, thank you for joining us. Yeah, so it's good night from me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good night from him. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, consider the door open to appear on another episode. Thank you. It's been awesome stuff. Hopefully not Bond, though, because no we went for like three hours. Always available for Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it, Doctor Who, Stephen Bobbitt! Yeah! <laughs> Round of applause for Craig. Yeah, Yay. Craig. Thank you. Love you, Sally Sparrow. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.